You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Life is a series of decisions, and oftentimes you can be wrong with a successive series of decisions, and then people kick you when you're down, when you're in those drawdowns of life and your drawdowns and your strategies. But sometimes it's one big trade that makes all the difference. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Michael Guyat, Portfolio Manager at Toroso Investments and author of five award-winning research papers on market anomalies and investing. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Michael. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Uh, I appreciate the invite. Thank you. So before we jump into your trades, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? You know, where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? <laughs> uh, I was probably less annoying as a kid than I am today, at least uh, on social media. So um, I always start off by making a point that I kind of grew up in the business. Some of the viewers may recognize the name Bob Farrell who was this sort of legendary technician when it came to looking at markets in the late 80s, my father worked on his team at Merrill Lynch. And um, naturally, when you were uh, a young kid, uh, you want to play video games, but you can't help through osmosis to uh, learn about what your uh, father and mother are doing. So uh, he worked with Farrell, wrote two books on markets, started his own RIA in 1991, and just by the very nature of the kinds of conversations he and my mother would have about markets, I naturally got interested uh, in investing. Went to NYU, graduated, joined the family uh, firm, uh, and uh, years later, I'm here uh, with you here on Real Vision. So you always, because some people totally don't want to do what their parents did. They just think it sounds so boring, but it sounds like you were intrigued. What was it about the conversations that ha- they were having that sounded so interesting to you? You know what's interesting about that is that um, you're right, although I guess it's well known that children often mimic their parents, right, whether you're a, a baby or a or a adolescent. I think what kind of intrigued me about it was it just sounded like there was so much going on and so many things that were dynamic that that sparked an interest for me. You know, in middle school and high school, I was always seen as the guy that would be involved in investing. I was that guy that uh, at a ridiculously young age would not only – be reading my summer reading, reading list from school, but also literally be reading things about technical analysis. I mean, I, I just kind of fell <laughs> in love with it. Uh, and I had a, a – what really I think did it was I had an internship um, for U.S. Clearing, which was part of Quick and Riley, 
uh, on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange when I was 16. Mm. And that's when obviously there were people, right, at at the exchange. But that was a really interesting experience because you get to see all the excitement, all the stress, all the success, all the fears, uh, kind of real time, right? And uh, that to me was really a very eye-opening uh, exposure. Um, so, you know, that I think is, um, I was never, I don't think I was ever with hindsight sort of uh, pushed into the field. You know, my mm-hmm. parents always took the view that uh, you choose what you want to choose. Here are your options. You know, you make up your own mind. So, um, yeah, I think that was sort of the uh, the big revelation to me. It's just, it's exciting. Yeah, I, the the floor of the stock exchange or well, most exchanges that still exist just look like empty movie sets now. But back then it really was because I used to report from the floor also when there were people and the paper everywhere and, and it was electric. I mean, there was that the drama of, you know, financial markets did play out in real time. So I can see why that was so appealing to you. And, and to your point, it was very messy because you're right, there was there were, there were loose uh, pink papers that maybe had trays that were executed that were just literally on the floor. I mean, I can't imagine the kind of job that uh, janitors and people cleaning the, the floor up oh. uh, were going through every single day. It was mountains, mountains of paper they were pushing around at the end. Yeah. So your first trade you consider one of your best. And that was taking a job at a family office instead of going to get your MBA at Cornell uh, in 2009. So set the scene for us. What's happening in your life at this point when you're facing this big decision? Yeah, and by the way, it's important to note for the audience that trades are not necessarily an investment in in markets, right? A trade is a decision. absolutely. Right, you have to choose among different options within an opportunity set and whether that option becomes good or bad, you only know with hindsight, but that's really what a trade is. So whether it's a career trade or a, an actual investing trade, I think that mindset's important. So I went through, um, with hindsight again, one of the most difficult periods I've probably ever and hopefully will ever go through in my life. So I joined the family investment firm in uh, 2004. You know, my, my father had some good success with that investment firm. Uh, my mother was with him as well. But uh, never really kind of grew in a big way. My father also had hedge fund, you know, got it to some small amount of size, had some notable clients, which we can talk about. And uh, same deal, never really kind of get it, got it to upsize. Um, in 2008, uh, most people, of course, will remember Lehman Brothers. 2008 is memorable for me because it was more than just Lehman Brothers. Prior to Lehman Brothers, the largest institutional client pulled out of uh, the investment advisor my father was the CIO of. Lehman Brothers happens, um, and my father passes away towards the end of 08. So I got hit with three unbelievable professional and personal uh, successive hits, right? The family business closed. I was not of age to take it over as CIO. It was, you know, just in my mid-20s. Everything I thought about my identity was flipped on its head because, you know, what the hell am I going to do now, right? Family firm closed. Oh, and by the way, the great financial crisis is just starting. And of course, you know, again, my, my father passed away suddenly, um, uh, a couple of days before Thanksgiving. So I didn't know what to do. Oh, and by the way, on top of that, I got my CFA charter uh, in in the worst period, you know, where it really wouldn't have mattered, right? Because I had no name, I had no recognition, um, and I'm competing against people that are getting laid off from Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Lehman Brothers. And not, not just people, you know, entire... Right. The entire firm, and we're not talking about some movement, you know, for those who didn't live through it, we weren't even sure the financial system was going to hang together. So you had 
people who had years of experience yeah. hitting the street. And there was a certain desperation going on because everybody's identity was destroyed at that time. So it was incredibly scary and chaotic time for anyone having anything to do with the financial market. So I, I can't imagine how difficult that was. Yeah, and I, and, and I had no pedigree, right? I mean, I worked for, I always took investing very serious and I always took the the idea of trying to help the family business grow very seriously. I never wanted to be seen as the golden child, uh, so to speak, who would come in and suddenly act like a hotshot because his father built a medium-sized investment firm. And uh, yeah, I always wanted to make my own name and, and be known. It might, you know, as 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 much of a hard work as my father was, he didn't really have that many connections that I could even leverage at that time following his passing to begin with. So I was at a real inflection point in my in my life and in my career. And that's interesting enough also when I started doing a lot of back tests, which we'll get into, trying to understand markets, because following uh, my father passing, here comes 2009, and I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I'm applying to... 20, 30 jobs every single day, right? Whatever I can find, right? Because I need to make an income. I'm, I'm, I'm asking people for help. I'm, I'm literally just a guy desperate at this point. So your father did have some, did did know some people though. You said there were some notable people who had invested in his fund, right? In his hedge fund, yeah. It was, it was. I mean, the most notable that one there was Stanley Druckenmiller in two thousand two thousand one, oh, right? But you know, big names, yeah. Okay. But but you know, he 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 had left. I forget what year, but you know, it's, it's not like I had any relationship with Druckenmiller, and right. you know, it was more of a arms arms length type relationship. But you know, as you know, right? When when sometimes looking for a job is a full time job, right? In and of itself, so. I'm, I'm applying anywhere and everywhere. I'm desperate. The world seems like it's ending still in 2009, as much as the market starts to rebound. And because it was taking so much time to look for a job, I figured, well, let me try to create some automated strategies to trade. Because I don't want to be trading myself. I'd rather have something that automatically does it based on certain rules so that I can actually spend my time doing other things to actually get a full-time offer. So uh, I was a heavy user of TradeStation back then. Learned easy language, and that's really where a lot of my own uh, skepticism around uh, markets came into play because I started testing every single possible thing. There's nothing quite like desperation to make you creative and make you realize that most of the things that are uh, are said about markets really aren't valid. So doing a lot of backtesting, looking for a job, and then I thought to myself, all right, well, if the financial system is never going to be the same again, okay, with hindsight, obviously that wasn't quite the case, but uh, let me reset my career. All right, let me let me try to maybe see if I can get an MBA. So I had still was still applying for jobs, and the same day that I got accepted into Cornell for the MBA program, which was my reset, right? It's kind of the nuclear option for my for my future. I got a job offer with a family office that was based out in uh, in Geneva. So literally the same day, within hours of 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 each other. So I said to myself, "All right, well, I'd rather get paid than pay for education, uh, right?" So I ended up choosing the family office and. Uh, that was a, a a great trade with hindsight because had I not done that, I wouldn't have ended up going to the other firm I went to to then launch the mutual fund to then launch the ETFs. I'm a part. I, I'm an entrepreneur. Set you on the path. Set me on the path. And you know, it's funny. It's kind of like um, I forget what that movie was. Um, Sliding doors. Yeah, and there's like one that's like a it's like almost like a baseball uh, thing. It's uh, Mr. Destiny or something like that. But there's a it's about somebody who missed some kind of you know game winning home run. Uh, and what would have happened had that kid gotten the home run, and life was mm-hmm. so dramatically different because that one thing set off a series of of events, right? In a different to your point, a different path. 
So that to me was with hindsight a great trade because I don't think if I if I got the MBA I would have been able to achieve what I've achieved, which I'm still not done achieving uh, in certainly the same way. Yeah. Did you feel at the time that you were taking a really big risk by doing that? Because, I mean, we're still in the midst of the financial crisis. I mean, it's, you know, things are still dire in 2009. Yeah, no, it, it's a, it's a, yes, every, and, and just like every trade is a risk, right? That was unequivocally a risk because I only stayed with the family office for a year. And I only stayed with the family office for a year because I realized I didn't want to just have one client. And what really did it for me was May 6th of 2010, the flash crash. May 6th of 2010, I have emails that I've still saved that are documented where I said, two hours before the flash crash, May 6th, we are going to crash today. Why? Because I was seeing certain relationships that I had back-tested, going back to that period of 07, uh, 08, 09, that I knew had some predictive power. And I said, we're going to crash today. Things are. Good. Please let me short this portion of this prop trading portfolio for the family. Please let me do everything I can to take advantage of what I believe is a tail event. And they wouldn't let me. And my compensation was based on performance. So um, it became one of those junctures where I took the risk choosing them, but then I took another risk in deciding to leave them. Yeah. What Do you think that your father's death factored into your decision at all? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. My um, my father came from, from Egypt, right? So he was an immigrant and um, had to learn the the language, the culture from scratch, right? And dealt with all kinds of um, discrimination, right, as an immigrant. And was it's one of those stories where he owed $200, right? He had no money. He was, he was as poor as poor could get. And was notoriously stubborn when the odds were against him. I mean, he always used to tell me, tell me I can't do something just so I can prove I can do it. That really stuck with me. And, and as much as I saw the environment being so horrendous. I said to myself, you know what, let me let me bet on myself, right? I've used that line in, in when I republished his book, bet on yourself when no one else will. After all, the payout is higher that way, right? So I, I think his death reinforced in me that idea that no matter how th- hard things get, you got to persevere. And if you want to succeed, you have to be able to go through the failures and keep being enthusiastic with every single round, which may be another failure. That's not easy to do. Extremely difficult. This is, by the way, something that uh, uh, the Twitterati, uh, FinTwit community, for the most part, doesn't really fully understand uh, because life is a series of decisions. And oftentimes you can be wrong with a successive series of decisions. And then people kick you when you're down, when you're in those drawdowns of life and your drawdowns and your strategies. But sometimes it's one big trade that makes all the difference. Promise you don't know with hindsight, except you know, except with hindsight, what that what that trade in life or in investing is. That's absolutely true, especially in the people seem to want absolute, you know, an absolute answer in, in that moment. But everyone's operating on a different time horizon. Yeah, well, exactly your point. And and I, I look, we, I always say we live in the small sample, right? Every trade is a trade in the small sample. The question is, is that your process, whether to trade in markets or a trade in your life and your career, all else being equal, would you repeat the same decision, right? Even if my father had not passed, let's say my father had not passed, the family firm just closed, Lehman Brothers still happened, um, I probably wouldn't have changed anything. Mm. Is that your kind of gut test when you're when you're thinking about these kind of decisions or when you're, you know, looking back and, and trying to sort of 
backtest your own decision making, yeah. you know, would I do it again? Am I on the right path? Would I do it again? Yeah, I think I think so. Look, the um, it's well known in behavioral finance that the the most powerful emotion is regret, right? Regret aversion is a very real thing, and regret only happens with hindsight, right? Because why would you regret if it ended up being that decision turned out the way uh, you initially hoped it would? But I do think that um, when it comes to to those periods where it seems like nothing is going your way, you have to just keep going through hell. And I've gone through a number of these kind of periods, but going through hell, if you get to the other side, that ends up being, in some ways, the most profitable trade because sometimes the best trade is simply surviving. I think this is the second trade that stands out to you, is one of your worst, and it sounds like it might be one of these one of these periods, and that's launching the ATAC Rotation Mutual Fund in late 2012. So start off, first of all, and sort of explain to us what that what that mutual fund is and why why is this important? Yeah, no, no so, so, okay, so uh, I realized with the family office, I didn't want to just have one client. So I hooked up with uh, a registered investment advisor, a small firm that, um, you know, he was a solo practitioner that I had known. who was actually the only person I interned for outside of the family business from NYU. And I got back in touch with him. I said, listen, you know, I'm not asking for much, but let me let me try to help you build your separately managed account business. And this is 20, end of 2010. Again, I have no name. I'm just some young kid trying to figure out what to do with his life now with a small unknown firm. So I started writing. And I used to watch a lot of, you know, CNBC, Bloomberg, and, and I had certain people that I liked to listen to. And one person that I gravitated towards was Mark Faber of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom report. And I remember very vividly, February of 2011, he was on Bloomberg making some case about markets saying the markets look like they're acting deflationary. And back then, everyone was worried about inflation. And I was seeing the same thing with my own spin on markets and investing. So uh, I started writing a piece. I got his email address. I said, listen, I just saw you on Bloomberg. I happen to agree with you. I work in an RAA. Would you mind taking a look at this article and maybe consider publishing it? Surprise, surprise, he responded, right? And he ended up publishing that piece and then following that, something like 20 other pieces I wrote for him for his gloom, boom, and doom report, which I'm really very thankful for because he gave me a chance as somebody who was an unknown person. But, you know, I, I talk about being stubborn and, and persevering. Well, now you've got some credibility because here's a guy that's known. So I went out to mm-hmm. John Molden. Oh, I wrote for uh, uh, Mark Faber. I'd love to do some research for you and, and contribute to free writings. Went to Barry Ritholtz. Oh, I've done some research. Right? So, so I snowballed sort of the, the credibility using that one uh, entry with Faber. In 2011, I was very adamant saying that there would be a summer crash in markets. And I was saying that based on many of the intermarket relationships that I follow in my funds today. And I was writing for Seeking Alpha, and I think from early June until – the debt downgrade that happened in August of 2011, I wrote something like 20 articles, 16 of which in the title was Summer Crash. Okay, So I started getting a lot of notoriety when that decline happened, got a spotlight by Marco Watch. I tried to reach out to reporters, right, very stubborn again. And then I started getting in the media. Okay, And all the while, the separately managed account strategies that we were running at the prior firm were having some pretty strong years. 2011 up 8.5%, 2012 up 45 I think it was. So I'm getting all this notoriety. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, how do I monetize this notoriety beyond SMAs? Let me launch a mutual fund. Right? So I was kind of the guru of the moment, even though I always say there are no gurus, only cycles. And launched a mutual fund with no anchor clients in 
uh, end of 2012, September 2012. It's a risk-on, risk-off strategy. We can kind of touch on it a little bit. So I launched my first mutual fund. I'm green. I don't know anything about this business, right? I've never worked for a mutual fund company. I just decided to put it out there. Went from zero dollars in assets to 130 million very quickly. Wow. Then the taper change from 2013 happens, and everything starts to go wrong. Meaning, it turns out that I launched a risk-on, risk-off mutual fund strategy in a cycle which is purely risk-on where the market from 2013 on is just going up and to the right, very few volatility risk-off periods. And by the way, an environment which would just favored large caps, whereas the strategy was designed to play small cap and emerging market momentum. So it's a, it's, a, it's a bad trade from a career perspective in that here I am trying to take advantage of all this notoriety I had in 2011, 2012. I'm excited. I get to 130 million. I'm, I'm, I'm like, this is it. I'm about to really blast off. And then I come right back down to earth. Right? And I happen to uh, try to build a strategy in the exact wrong cycle. And I spent a lot of time on the road talking at CFA chapters and trying to get people to pay attention to the approach. And I used to always say that launching a risk-on, risk-off strategy in 2012 into 2013 was no different than launching an equity strategy in 2008. It's the wrong strategy for the environment that you're operating in. But I go back to sometimes success is survival. Right, but the timing of that, I think, with hindsight, was um, was you couldn't have timed it more wrong. Yeah, but you also know, don't know when that's you know what's wrong again with hindsight, except for hindsight. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Did this really shake your confidence? Like, did you did you think, wow, I, I you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm a fraud. I, I'm not. Maybe I don't have this sort of skill in trading that I thought I had. So it's a it's a very um, it's a very interesting question in the sense that everything I do is rules based and back tested. So a lot of the what goes into the concepts around my mutual fund back then, and which still is around, and, and the ETFs I launched are based on all those different back tests and the relationships that I found had some real merit historically. So I never once doubted the approach. I never once doubted the, the strategy. I doubted my ability to survive long enough. Because, you know, when you're small and you're an entrepreneur and you have this, this fund and you don't have any real backing, it's all based on you. It's all based on your name, all based on whatever personal brand you have, right? Trust in the individual's IP, right? And doing that with a smile, even though, because we live in a small sample, it is remarkably draining to keep talking about the strategy, keep being on the road as a one-man wholesale army. Never had the resources to get a whole team of, of salespeople. And there were a lot of firms, I'm not going to name them, but there were a lot of firms in 2011, 2012, 2013 that were tactical uh, that got to billions of dollars in assets and they went around trip. And I survived, but to your so it was never a sort of a situation where I was questioning the idea that it's fraud or not fraud or you know or, or took it personally. But the worst feeling in the world is to feel like you're running in place, mm. and I think it's largely true from experience that the volatility of AUM assets under management with a mark to market vehicle is more than the volatility of the underlying strategy, which makes it maddening. Because you can believe in your approach, you can explain it you know, as beautifully as you can, but the reality is people have their own short-term biases, people have their own mistaken notions about investing, 
And how do you try to build a business when the volatility of your revenue is all over the place because your clients are not able to stick through it in the same way you, who has all the knowledge about it, can? It's frustrating. Beyond. And yet you stay with it. Did you ever think, I mean, even the even finance, did you ever just think, you know, I've I've got the intellect, like this is just, especially after what happened to your father yeah. as well. I mean, do you just feel like, you're beating your head against the wall? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, and it's interesting because it goes back to this this belief that I have that um, the macro environment determines your success more than the micro effort. So when my father started his investment firm in 1991, you're the, at the start of a massive bull market. He starts a hedge fund that actively uh, shorts, and he goes very aggressive against the dot-com names in 2000, 2002. It has high, incredibly high volatility. Um because when you're shorting in a bear market, you have these massive drawdowns because the market rips rips higher. Um, yeah. But that environment favored him. I launched an environment that didn't favor me, right? But it is one of those things where I think that every storm has a has a point where it ends. You don't know where. You know that every day that goes by, you're closer to it. So it was very difficult to to go through that process of trying to build a fund, especially when you could taste success. You know, it's like out of the gate, up to 130 million in that mutual fund. Mm -hmm. And then just meandering, went from 130 to 100, back to 110, down to 70, up to 110 again, then down to as low as 58, right? That brings us to 2019. So that, I think, is, um, that that does mess with you mentally. How can it not? So how do you stay motivated at this point? Um, I think... Motivation is kind of an interesting thing because I kind of go back to that line my father said, tell me I can't do something and I'll prove that I can do it. Um, I had a lot of belief in in the approach. Mm. I really did. And I, I sometimes motivation is just going back and saying to yourself, are my facts right? Will the, will the cycle turn in my favor? Mm. And it's interesting, right, because you don't know when you're launching a, a fund – in this business, when you're creating a business around investing and you have a particular strategy, you don't know if you should view your past several years running a strategy, which may have been mediocre. Uh, you don't know if you should view that as sunk cost fallacy. You put the money in there and just give it up, right? It's already gone. Or if it's selling the low, to use investment lingo, right? Mm-hmm which is unique in this investment business because you can't really apply that to other industries and other businesses. But, you know, you're running a, f- a fund, you're launching a strategy, you're being an entrepreneur, trying to be innovative. You don't know if if your AUM uh, uh, decrease is means you should actually close the fund or if that's the moment in time where the strategy itself starts to turn around. And uh, it's, what's interesting about motivation is that it's that recognition that you don't know that keeps you motivated because it means you still have a chance. For some, <laughs> I as think as for as others, as they as would say. Right. No, as as, as, and that's an important point yeah. too, right? So if you're going to survive, you have to make sure that your expenses are, 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 are low enough to allow you to survive, right? You don't, you don't want your, your expenses to have the volatility of your revenue. But it also strikes me that there is this persistent belief or optimism. I mean, if you're not dead, you have a chance to survive. You know, there are other people who are already dead or, you know, see another way. I mean, to push through, that's, that's a particular kind of resilience. Yeah, and, and it's also a, um, it's interesting because it's resilience and it's humility. So so I always, on Twitter, on my lead lag report account, I always make the point that nobody can predict the future. Right? I keep using that line 
no amount of intelligence increases the clarity of one's crystal ball, which is, by the way, a very humbling statement to say because it's like no amount of intellect is going to really matter. I can't, I can't guarantee what tomorrow is going to bring. I have no idea. I can guess based on probabilities. I can make decisions, but I have no idea what the actual outcome is going to be. But that works both ways because that also means that if I can't predict the future, then that means I, I can't predict that I'm going to fail or succeed. Right. That, that's so that humility actually is, I would argue, what kind of keeps you in the game and motivated because it, it's a reminder that, well, maybe things will turn around. And that actually is exactly what happened with the mutual fund, especially in 2020. So there's hope. <laughs> we're going to dangle that hope out there. But I want to talk about your third trade um, because I think as we're talking about this resilience, uh, this is also one of your worst yeah. trades. So you know, I'm, I'm assuming in between we've had successes as well, because now we're we're flipping to 2018. And this is one of your worst trades being short the VIX in 2018 yep. during what would become known as Valmageddon, right? Uh, so set the scene for us a little bit. What's happening? We'll talk about that day in the markets for those, again, who may be not familiar with it. But what's happening in your business, in your personal life at the start of 2018? Are things good? Are you happy with your career? Feeling optimistic? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I was feeling um, frustration continued, right? Because again, I'm not at the point where I thought I would be years ago to where I was in 2018. And, you know, when you're running a mutual fund or an ETF, you've got a mandate, right? So if for whatever reason that mandate's not working because the environment's not favoring it, well, how do I maybe try to counter that personally. Well, you know, I've done, I do my own trades, right? Following a different approach that is more aggressive, right? Let me see if I can get a chance at least to, to, to in some ways, buy myself time, right? Financially with my own approach and of way of looking at markets separate from the mutual fund strategy, but still at the core of what I believe in, which is that there are these leading indicators to, to risk. So, you know, in my personal trading account, I was doing very well, very, very well, actually. And uh, I had a position in the short volatility ETF, which was XIV. Now, in the lead up to what they call Volmageddon, which I think was mid-February of 2018, volatility was very low. And I was one of those people saying that I know that, saying this to others, I know there's a big volatility spike coming because there was so much complacency. All right? it, was, it was one of those things. But it's funny, the thing about uh volatility in black swans is people can say, well, it's not a black swan because it's obvious it was going to happen. But it's the timing that makes it the black swan, the when, mm. right? So I had a big position using certain indicators uh, that said, be risk on, short volatility, which by the way, if you're really going to be risk on, the best risk on is actually not long equities, it's actually the short vol um, because you get that that time decay to benefit you. So I had that XIV ETF short vol position in. Volmageddon happens, the VIX suddenly spikes, and basically the ETF is down like 80% uh, in a single yeah. you know period, single day. That was a, a shock. And even though I knew that something like that was a risk, it was a shock because my hope was that the signals which I back-tested would avoid that. Even though I know that historically the signals that I, I am known for, utilities, lumber to gold, treasuries, they don't get every single major VIX spike correct as a warning. Mm -hmm. They just tend to, on average get them correct, which means you'll always have a couple of junctures like then, like now, where your signals seem to miss it or your approach is not working. So that was a, a horrendous trade with hindsight. Now, this is, I think, is also an important point. We're talking about worse trades. question is, was it a, a, a horrendous process? Right. right. And this is a nuance because I think this is, you know, I do a lot of these, these conversations um, 
on Twitter. And I always make that point when somebody says, uh, you know, I evaluate my, my poor trades. And my response is, well, but, but if your process is correct, it's going back to what you had mentioned before, Mike, would you have changed anything? Right? Even though the outcome may not have been the right trade with hindsight because you lost, it could still be the right trade because of the process and because the multiple roll of the die would have actually gotten you ahead. So that was very, very heartbreaking. And it was a reminder to me of something else I often say, which is, I say this to my own investors as well, as somebody who lived through this, just because it's raining doesn't mean you'll crash. Just because it's sunny doesn't mean you won't. I always frame things in terms of conditions, the weather, the probabilities that something happened, you know, and the tail event is the crash. And so what are you trying to tell them when you say that? Like, what, what point are you trying to get across? That you have to go beyond the small sample and that you have to think about investing and in anything as tactical from the standpoint of multiple roll of the die, right? Mm-hmm. This is a funny business because, and there are a lot of behavioral studies I'm sure you've seen on this, people want consistency, Right? They always want the, the, the every single month to make 1% or 2%, which is beyond ridiculous. Um, the reality is frequency matters a lot less than magnitude. And by the way, that works both ways because you can be making consistent money and then have a Vomageddon where you lose everything, right? or at least a good chunk of that position obviously goes away. And it works the other way too because you can be wrong consistently and then very suddenly have a massive right trade uh, yeah, that makes up for all the times you've lost. Right? It's, that's sort of the nature of anything in life which is not a normal distribution, and life is not a normal distribution. I'm a big fan of Nassim Taleb of the Black Swan, and he said something which really resonates with me. History doesn't crawl, it jumps. Yeah. And just I'm just going to put a little bit more color around that day, too. I think the big – it played out, of course, but I think it was around February 5th or so. Yeah, that's not right. And, and it went from – the volatility index, the VIX, went from sort of like 18 in the morning to 37 by by mid-afternoon. That that you just didn't see moves like that, right? And so that huge spike caused uh major losses in these short volatility products that you mentioned. And that set off a negative feedback loop Correct. with the way markets move now and trading and being interrelated that that wiped out like took two billion dollars in investor money. So this was a this was a seizing up of the financial system um different than we saw in 2008 but on that similar things started not working everyone freaked out right. everyone sort of you know became so risk off it was a, it was a race for collateral there's collateral scarcity there's all sorts of things that people are still trying to look at to understand what happened so it was this extraordinary event that no one could have seen we we've ne- we hadn't seen anything like that that you got swept up in but when you're talking about when i hear you talking about your sort of discipline about your back testing and your models and the the sort of things that you rely on and then something like this again wiping out your you know this th- so much money doesn't it make it all feel random i mean does it how do you how do you sort of keep going and try to make sense of something yeah. that just seems like it can blindside you and take your legs out. So what I would say is that that's a, con- that's a constant, not just in investing, but in life, right? Because you can, you can be hit by a bus tomorrow. Yeah, you can, exactly right. I'm saying, you know, and, and you, you can be the safest person in the world. And then the suddenly whatever the, the roof craters on you, uh, whatever, God forbid what I'm saying, like, you know, it's, it's, that's, there, there's always randomness in, in everything. And, and, and this is also, I think, an important point to, especially, again, in the domain of investing, which is that I think too many people think that it's an exact science and that there is no randomness. 
It's why you end up having a lot of these hedge funds that have 50 variables in their equations end up blowing up, right? Because the reality is nothing in a chaotic system can perfectly model the chaotic system. And life is chaotic, right? So you've got two systems kind of, you know, from that perspective, um, echoing each other. So from that perspective, I always believe that if you're following, let's say, a signals-based or tactical approach, you're better off focusing on the signals or, or the set of variables that might explain 40, 50, 60% of why markets do what they do and accept the truth, which is that the rest is probably randomness, then try to curve fit. Now, to your point, yeah, it does make you feel like there's a degree of randomness. It's very demotivating. It's like, here I am with a strategy which is designed to try to avoid tails. And I know it doesn't avoid every single tail, every single extreme period. And I happen to live in the anomaly, in the small sample. Then you have to say to yourself, well, does that mean that I should avoid doing that approach going forward? No, what it means is that you have to scale your sizing properly to survive. goes back to that point, right? Because if you are not sizing, I always make this point to say how much you own of something matters a lot more than what you own, right? Same thing with any kind of strategy. So it's more of a reminder that if you you will always have these periods where you're desynced. And for whatever reason, it's not in the data set. No amount of, of, of backward-looking backtesting will show you that this could have happened because, to your point, it never happened before. That's the nature of a black swan, right? Black swans live in strategies and indicators as well. But the only way you survive that, again, is to simply size properly and not be too convinced that just because it's raining, you're going to crash. So your fourth trade went from being one of your worst trades to being your best trade, and that is, once again, trade number two, the ATAC Rotation Mutual Fund. And it's so interesting to me because you're not the only person who's of, of the four that really stand out for you in these conversations, that one of your best is your worst yeah. at different times. It's, it, 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 this has happened again and again. So um, I find that fascinating. But so how did it go from being your worst to your best? By the way, that's, uh, that's mean reversion, mm. right? And, and I've, I've always made that, that point on the road that mean reversion is perhaps the only thing you can say is, quote, unquote, guaranteed in markets. Now, of course, the challenge is you don't know what the mean is, right? But that's a conversation for a different day. But mean reversion is a concept that's as old as the Bible. Right? He who is first shall be last. And last first is mean reversion. So you go from your worst trade to your best trade, right? And the, the, it's the mean that matters, right? So we go back to survival. So mutual fund is, is it's not that it's doing terrible, right? It's, it had a strong 2017. It was up 27.5%, but the market itself was up 20-some-odd percent. And it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, going risk-on, risk-off. But again, there's no real meaty risk-off periods where you can get some, some real convexity being in treasuries in advance of a tail event in equities, which is the whole idea of that fund, all the research papers I'm known for, the lead lag report, everything. So the prior REA that I launched the mutual fund under, the principal basically wanted to go a different direction. So I was at an inflection point in my career. Again, do I leave the RA to go somewhere else, which means I leave the fund and close the fund because I was the one running it to begin with, really? Uh, or do I try to take it somewhere else? So the mutual fund in 2019 had about $57 million in assets. Again, remember, I said the volatility was all over the place of AUM, which, again, is very disheartening. So, and I didn't really have any sort of real shiny object moment, right, where there's a war story. This is the kind of environment this mutual fund can really do well, because I didn't really right. have that. There was no risk-off periods post-QE3 that you could really point to. Yes, there was 2018, the mutual fund did well there, but it was whipsawed around because of the 
the trade uh, tariff war that Trump was doing in 2018. So uh, I reach out to a whole bunch of different people. I play the lottery game. I get in touch with some of the principals at Toroso. They're willing to take me and then proxy over the mutual fund to Toroso, which is the RIA that I'm under now, knowing that it's really just a way for me to kind of be paid. Right? Their, their hope is that they bring me because of my skill set, my hunger, and that essentially the mutual fund at $57 million will keep going and I'll be able to at least generate a salary from them. So I'm in negotiations, negotiations with them in January of 2020. We sign, I start doing some work in February. The mutual fund is starting the proxy. Mid-January of 2020, the signals, utilities and treasuries, which I've documented going back in history, do tend to warn you of risk-off periods. Mid-January 2020, the mutual fund gets the signal to go long-duration treasuries before the COVID crash and stays there. So suddenly, I have the number one fund and strategy in the world, literally, because it was in equities for the first two weeks of January, so it got some gains there, and then goes into treasuries, and basically no strategy, very few funds go all in treasuries, if any, other than mine, right, with the kind of speed and aggressiveness that my strategies do. So it's in long-duration treasuries, COVID crash happens, and yields are collapsing because the world is ending. Mm. And that's my convexity. That's my risk off. That's my tail event. Equities are going down and now making money in treasuries. So suddenly, in the midst of the COVID crash, while the world looks like it's ending, that fund is up something like 30 40%. But that's not where the story ends because that's only in that period. It's a risk on, risk off strategy. Now, I was writing for Seeking Alpha. I was on Bloomberg saying all the signals. I was saying this in early March. You can look it up. It's documented. Early March 2020, I said, everything I'm seeing says that we're going to have a potential melt-up end of March, which seemed insane at the time because the world was shutting down and the world is collapsing. How could I say in three, four weeks a melt-up in equity started? It's not my opinion. It was based on an interpretation of the way these signals were playing out. And the mutual fund goes from treasuries all in to 1.3 times equities March 31st, pretty much a week after the low. So I got both sides of it right. Now, there are a number of other kind of false signals between then and the end of the year, but I closed 2020 up 72% out of nowhere. Right? I had my war story, right? And mutual fund goes from that $57 million or whatever it was end of 2019 to a tie of 384 in February. Oh, and by the way, the proxy was just starting to take place as the COVID crash was, was occurring, which meant that here I am trying to bring over this mutual fund to a new RIA. Proxying a mutual fund is very difficult to bring it from one fund to another, uh, from one firm to another firm because you need shareholders to vote. But it became pretty easy for shareholders to vote when they were stuck at home. <laughs> so the, it, 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 as I look back, it's remarkable because the the firm that said uh, that was handling the proxy process to bring the ATAC rotation fund to Tarosa said this is going to be a very hard proxy. They didn't think it would happen. But then I got the performance. Oh, and by the way, now all the people that are cold calling and all these people are, are getting their mail saying, are you okay with this fund, which, by the way, happens to be now be working, uh, going to another firm. Yeah, sure. So it ended up being a, a, an incredible period. So going back to your point, I went from launching it at the worst possible time to finally seeking out to have a hell of a period where it really had a big run. Unfortunately, it didn't last long enough. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So how did you feel, though? Did you feel uh, vindicated by the fact that this worked, that, that all the, the hard work that you had put in finally paid off? I was in Maine uh, 
late June, July, August 2020. And I remember saying to my colleagues at Toroso, they're like, oh, exactly kind of your, 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 your question, right? It's like, how do you feel? You feel good? You're like, you, you're able to, to uh, we're amazed, right? You're, you're able to kind of uh, suddenly just out of nowhere survive and do really well and, and, and the whole world's ending. And my response to them, which they were shocked by, was now the real work begins. Mm. Because unfortunately, assets follow performance. The problem with that, when you're risk on, risk off, is that performance tends to come mainly from risk off because you get whipsawed playing defense, right? That's why the strategy never really kind of stood out in a big way because in a pure risk on environment, you will naturally have signals that tell you to play defense and the market keeps going higher. So you miss some of that upside. Your up capture has to be less than 100%, which is why on a side note, I lever, right, to try to play catch up. Mm -hmm. But now because I'm getting so much attention and because the assets are growing, now I have to educate the new investors, about what it is they're actually buying, because they're not just buying a chart. They're buying a process that needs a particular type of environment, right? And that was, I mean, I, I was dizzy most days in June, July, because I was on the phone doing 10, 15 calls every single day successively in a row. Basically, not even remember who I'm talking to because I'm saying the same story uh, because nothing's new, right? The question is always the same. The, the, the approach is always the same. But it was a, um, I had never worked, I've always been a hard worker. I've never worked as hard as I did back then. So as much as you can argue I should have enjoyed that moment in, in my career, that success, I didn't at all. That was like, all right, now I got to really solidify this. And unfortunately, I didn't quite do that. And so you're back on the roller coaster of assets going up and down, depending on the, so why keep doing it? Yeah. I guess when you're committed to something, you can't give up on it. And also, I think when you're committed to something and go through setbacks that you've already gone through, you're kind of used to the way the cycle repeats. And the ironic thing is that, yeah, I mentioned I launched a mutual fund 2012, wrong cycle. So I launched two ETFs, RORO, risk on, risk off, using a different signal, different opportunity set, November of 2020. I launched JoJo, junk on, junk off, a bond ETF that also tries to rotate risk on, risk off between high yield and treasuries. Again, they... All my funds, my mutual fund, my two ETFs, they all benefit from those risk-off periods and treasuries. They're all tested. They're all based on very real research. That's not my opinion. It's all rules-based. Just like I launched the mutual fund at the exact wrong time in 2012, pure risk-on. I launched Roro and JoJo uh, end of 2020, mid-2021. Here comes 2022. And again, it's the wrong environment, but in a different way. Because here in 2022, risk-off has not been risk-off. Treasuries have had the same kind of drawdown, if not worse, yeah. than equities. So it's funny because I've been through this. You know, mutual fund, the RORO ETF went from $41 million to now, as we speak, $12 million. And I have people saying, it looks like you forgot to go risk-off. Well, what am I supposed to do when risk-off is not acting risk-off, when risk-off is acting risk-on? The only way through hell is to keep going. So what, what makes me do it again or keep going through the cycle is I know how to survive. And I know that if I survive long enough, I will have enough diversification of strategies where hopefully – Unlike this year, if something's not working, something else will be working. I and mean, that's how you build a fund complex, right? But um, yeah, it, it is. This is a hard business. I mean, one thing is to talk about investing and macro. Another thing is to deal with the business side of the, of, of investing. Mm -hmm. And it is. Uh, it takes a real toll on you. But again, I'm stubborn. I got that from my father, you know. And I said to myself, well, I got. I'm this. I'm this deep. Right? There's a, a degree of escalation of commitments, so why would I stop now? Oh, and by the way, I happen to launch those funds in the worst environment possible in the anomaly. That actually kind of excites me because if things resync, now maybe 
I've got some room to make money in risk off because yields are higher to actually make money from risk off in treasuries whenever that convexity trade does eventually happen again. What do you think your dad would have to say about this journey so far? So I remember um, I remember going to his office once and you know, he had like this, whatever, six screens, you know, which I always thought was kind of funny. Um, and he said to me, and I was probably, I don't know, 23 maybe, wait till you're in my shoes to see how difficult this is. Wait till, and it's not from the standpoint of being a trader and investing. Wait till you're in my shoes as an entrepreneur, dealing with clients, right? Uh, dealing with randomness and people reacting on that randomness and then blaming you for that randomness. I think what he would say is very simple. Persevere. If you persevere, chances are you'll succeed. Right? And, and, and I think that's a large part of his own story, one that in my own way I carry in a different, with a different set of, of difficulties. But I think that's something that applies to most things. It goes back to that point, you know, selling low or is it sunk cost fallacy? You persevere, it's probably going to be selling the low if you do that, so might as well stick around and just survive, right? Unfortunately, and this is the other part too, investors probably don't really benefit from that unless they understand that concept because, again, people chase performance. And the best performance comes after a drawdown. It's just very hard to raise assets that way. You certainly have, I think, are very reflective about a, a lot of this. What is your big takeaway? You know, as you look back now, um, and you're clearly determined to persevere uh, and continue to profit from that patience, what's your big takeaway? What did you learn about yourself through this? You, um, you have to be very careful in managing your emotions in terms of thinking that you're at escape velocity. Right, that you taste success, you're there. Right, I was there in 2012, 2013 when mutual fund launched. I get to 130 million. I felt it. My life's about to change. I was there in 2020, up 72 percent in the mutual fund. My life's about to change, and I got pulled right back down to earth. And I think that one thing is to manage the expectations of your clients. Another thing is to manage your own expectations, and that's a really hard thing to do because it's kind of self defeating, right? Because it means that. Everything that you hope for the future, you have to recognize it may not happen. And certainly it may not happen on your timeline. Right? And meanwhile, you've got to live your life day to day, even though you're singularly focused on that one objective, that one goal, that one thing that you really want to be in your life right? and, and be known for and, and be successful at. That balance is a really hard thing to achieve. Have you redefined what success means? Because it sounds like you had something specific in mind. What was that? Is it the same or has it been changing with the more experience you get? Yeah, it's a good question because the, um, and I'm sure you've seen those, those kind of memes around success. So you, when, you're, when you're younger, you see two endpoints and you think that endpoint you want to get to is going to be to a straight line. And then the reality is the path to that endpoint kind of looks like this. Right? It's a bunch of like twists and turns and going backwards and forwards. So um, I don't think my end goal has changed. I think what I thought the path would be has dramatically changed. And also the amount of time it would take, right? It's, it's, it's just like anybody that does home construction, right? It always takes longer and costs more money than you think. Right? The, the mind is very good at being overly optimistic. And you may have all the plans in the world, and I always use that joke that, or that line that Mike Tyson said, right? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? I have been punched many, many, many times. Uh, I'm still standing, thankfully. And I do believe that if this environment 
ends soon, which is certainly my hope, that you get back to sort of these classic risk-on, risk-off dynamics. Uh, I get one of those convexity trades, and suddenly I'm back in the game. And I know the nature of the strategies, the nature of what I do is that when it works, it works with magnitude. I don't know when it's going to work, but I know historically, it's not my opinion. This is just how it works. So the best I can do is just try to keep on building my audience, keep on putting content, keep on being thoughtful and have integrity, which I think is really lacking in this business. Um, so that when that moment is there, people are like, ah, I always knew it. I always knew that guy, Guy Ed, had it, had it right in his approach. It was nothing to do with me. It has to do with the environment. What would your advice be to younger investors or entrepreneurs who share a similar dream that you have? What would your advice be? Well, I'd say, I'd say don't get into investing because uh, I think it's a, it's a very, very hard business. No, and I say that kind of that, cheap. That first trade you made? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe take a different one. Well, no, I'll tell you why I say that because I think it's interesting, right? Because the, the, the every, every, it's a, okay, every, every domain to be successful in it is a combination of skill, obsession, and luck. Right? It's like that old equation, success equals talent plus obsession plus error. Error is luck. Now, there are there are some domains in life where there's a clear line between effort, skill, and the outcome, where there's less reliance on luck. Investing has a lot of reliance on luck because it's about the timing under which you launch a particular strategy and the cycle that you happen to be in, whether it's changing or stays the same. Okay, so I say all that because if you want to be able to stick in, 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 in an entrepreneurial venture long enough, you need to have those periods where it's clear that there's a link between your effort and the outcome. Whereas investing in, it's not that linear, right? So, and that's important because if you see a link between your effort and the outcome, you're more likely to survive and stick it, stick through it, which is what an entrepreneur needs to have, that survivor uh, mentality. So I think the biggest success is you got to really know thyself to know if you can stick to whatever entrepreneurial venture you're sticking to it, uh, under the scenario that it may be more driven by luck than your own individual effort. Right. Mm. That that it, it's more of an assessment, not of necessarily what you're trying to do, but can you can you live with the fact that it may be more random and more based on luck than than all your business plans might indicate? Right. That to me, I think, is a really important part. And the truth is, you know, you got to have grit. I mean, it's just it's, it's, it, you know, you often hear about these these successful small businesses that say they would try to raise money and they got uh, declined by 99 out of, out of 100 uh, different investors, right? Bad trades. Every single trade trying to pitch is a bad trade because it's not actually yielding a result. But it's that one, it's frequency versus magnitude. That one investor, if you just stuck it out long enough to the 100th roll of the die, that made all the difference. So it's really a game of mentality and reflection, not of yourself, but of, of your ability to, to stick to whatever venture you're doing based on that skill versus luck kind of equation. It's a great, a great observation that everyone should take a look at as they're thinking about this career. Thank you for that. Michael, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you for being on My Life in Four Trades. Uh, hopefully that was uh, worth the time for those that listened all the way through, and I appreciate the invite. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. This podcast is a production of Real Vision. Our executive producer is Lisa Desai. Our producers are Frank Fowler and Michelle Ribeiro. Our sound engineer is Levi Mercurio. Our production assistant is Ranjani Vankarakrishnan. And this show is hosted by me, Maggie Lake. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.